Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. I say this calls for action, and now, nip it in the bud. Well, what I do is uh, I look a woman up and down, and I say, Hey, how you doing? And I do hope you're doing well, everybody. This is Jim McCarron's back with the good, the bad, and the TV on the Believe Podcast Network. It's the number one podcast network for professionals. Look for us on the platform of your choice. Subscribe and rate us. Check out Believe.com for advertising information on this or any Believe podcast. Now let's believe in the good, the bad, and the TV, shall we? The year is 1965. It's a year of escalating violence connected to wars both overseas and at home, each the result of escalating involvement in Vietnam. Racial wars continue to rage as well from Alabama and its Bloody Sunday in Selma to California where the Watts Uprising, which begins when a motorist is pulled over for reckless driving, explodes into five days of soul-burning riots in the heat of Los Angeles. Lyndon Johnson, elected in 1964, but serving in the office since 1963, begins his first full term as president in 1965. By the way, do you know that from his ascension to the presidency in 1963 through to his first official inauguration in January of this year, Johnson has no vice president. That's right, post-Kennedy for 15 months. There's no vice president. As of this year, in case you're wondering, it's Hubert Humphrey. In 1965, Malcolm X is assassinated in New York. And in Kansas City, Perry Smith and Richard Hickok, having been found guilty in the infamous 1959 murders of the Clutter family, written about in Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, are each hanged on the same April Wednesday. Elsewhere in the country, the World's Fair opens in the Flushing Borough of New York City. Its curious theme, given the state of the world, peace through understanding. Many of the fair's exhibits deal with the advent of computer technology, including a prediction for home use. Much like the 1939 World's Fair, there's also an RCA pavilion. This one, all about the wonder that is color TV. In Houston in 1965, the Astrodome opens. In Rhode Island, Bob Dylan gets grief for going electric at the Newport Folk Festival. In New York City, Pope Paul VI prays at Yankee Stadium. And the Beatles play Shea. In Chicago, Playboy Enterprises moves to the famous Palmolive Building on Michigan Avenue, as it also introduces its first-ever black playmate. Her name is Jennifer Jackson. On the eastern seaboard of North America, from Ontario to parts of New Jersey, upwards of 30 million people are left in the dark for 13 hours on a bitterly cold November night in a massive blackout brought on by increased demand. Three years from now, it'll be the inspiration for the film Where Were You When the Lights Went Out. And in Minneapolis in 1965, the Pillsbury Doughboy is born. On April 9th, 1965, 15 years 
after their national debut in comic strips across the country. The cast of characters that make up Charles Schulz's Peanuts Gang appear on the cover of Time magazine. Eight months later to the day, Charlie Brown takes over Christmas. Like many pop culture game changers from Facebook to Pumpkin Spiced Latte to Air Jordans to the Barbie doll, the 1965 TV special A Charlie Brown Christmas is an idea that almost doesn't happen. The special is born of an earlier first effort at bringing the print characters to life. In a 1959 Ford TV commercial, that's pulled off by former Disney animator Bill Melendez. Creator Scholes is impressed. As Carrie Hagan writes on the Smithsonian Mag website, in December 2015, quote, A few years later, Melendez reunited with the characters when Scholes agreed to collaborate on a documentary with Lee Mendelssohn, a television producer. Mendelssohn wanted a few minutes of animation for the project about Scholes and his history with Peanuts before marketing it. He couldn't sell the program, but at least one advertising firm on Madison Avenue remembered the project when Charlie Brown and company landed on the April 9, 1965 cover of Time. McCann Erickson, the agency representing another of America's most beloved institutions, Coca-Cola, end quote. Now, as it happens, there's a massive and expensive ad war going on at the time, television being used as the primary battlefield. Pepsi stakes a claim with the Pepsi generation, and by teaming up with Disney to present It's a Small World at that World's Fair in New York for the Pepsi Pavilion. For their part, inspired by the Time magazine cover, Coca-Cola and McCann Erickson set their sights on Christmas. Are the Peanuts gang interested in their own special? Mendelssohn and Schultz put together a single-page treatment as a pitch. Coke bites. CBS, on the other hand, the network being approached, isn't so sure. An animated show doesn't exactly fit in with the head guy's vision for his so-called Tiffany network. Cartoons belong on Saturday mornings, he says, and specials, well, they don't belong on TV at all since they don't foster habit viewing. And then there's the jazz score and the religious elements planned for the special, not to mention the intention to use real kids to voice the Peanuts kids. But the CBS top guy ends up leaving his post at some point in 1965, and in comes a new top guy who thinks differently, and in come TV specials. But there's still a general concern about whether the tale of a depressed underdog fighting for ideals in the face of opposition that borders on bullying, makes for good TV. Writes New York Magazine's Jennings Brown in 2016, quote, Mendelssohn rang animator Bill Melendez, who had helped animate a two-minute segment in the never-aired documentary. The three met in Schulz's office in Sebastopol, California. Schulz wanted the focus to be on the childhood stresses of putting on a Christmas play, Mendelssohn had just read The Fir Tree by Hans Christian Andersen and suggested the story include a tree that is as sad and misunderstood as Charlie Brown. They cranked down an outline and put it in a Western Union shipment to Atlanta. Several days later, the agency told them that they had a short six months to deliver the animated special. End quote. A planned story with several threads 
the special will pull on one major relatable one. Dispirited by what he sees as the commercialization of the holiday, Charlie Brown unsuccessfully attempts to counter them, after which pal Linus comes to his aid by reminding him of the true spirit of Christmas. It'll be infused throughout with a contemplative but uplifting score by jazz composer Vince Giraldi, of whom Scholes is a fan and who works with Mendelssohn on the earlier documentary idea, which actually leads to an album released a year before the special called Jazz Impressions of a Boy Named Charlie Brown. And a half-hour special is born. Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown. But three weeks before screening the special for CBS, writes Hagen and Smithsonian, quote, Mendelssohn and Melendez watched it in a small room full of animators. The pace felt slow. The music didn't quite fit every scene. The kids' dialogue sounded stilted. Mendelssohn remembers Melendez turning to him and saying, I think we've ruined Charlie Brown. End quote. The team scrambles for fixes. They add more of the score to help with what seem like sequences that are slowed by portions of dialogue. Best of all, they create a new song titled Christmas Time is Here. Trivia note, Christmas Time is Here is recorded with the St. Paul's Episcopal Church Choir in San Rafael, California, outside San Francisco. These voices are also the voices heard singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing in the special and exclaiming at its end, Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown. The story about the recording session with the choir is that it goes so late, the kids are taken for ice cream afterwards as a reward for their patience. Now, it's no treat during the first screening at CBS, though, which comes just days from the December 9th air date. Network executives, including future TV programming guru Fred Silverman, well, they don't know what to make of it, or if anyone will watch. But they're locked into a December 9th air date for the client-sponsored show. It has a time slot, so it has to go on. 15 million people watch when it does. Remember Silverman decades later in an interview, what did I know compared to Charles Scholes? For that matter, what does anyone know ahead of it coming to air in 1965? Says producer Mendelssohn, also years later, we only expected it to be on once and then never heard from again. A Charlie Brown Christmas wins the 1966 Emmy as Outstanding Children's Program and lives on as an annual holiday staple for 55 years. And of course, like many pieces of TV history, it almost isn't. Television is running a big gamble, writes TV columnist Val Adams in the New York Times on August 8th, 1965, four months before A Charlie Brown Christmas airs. Quote, It will attempt a half-hour animated cartoon in color based on the newspaper comic strip Peanuts, in lifting Peanuts characters from the printed page and infusing them with motion and audibility, television is tampering with the imagination of millions of comic strip fans, both well and self-conditioned, on how Charlie Brown, Lucy, and others should act and talk. End quote. You gotta believe. I'm Jim McCarrens. I'll be back with more Good Grief next week. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.